0: Det här är ett poddradioprogram från Studentradion 98,9. Alla våra program hittar du på studentradion.com eller i våran mobilapplikation Studentradio 98,9. Av upphovsrättsliga skäl är musiken förkortad.
1: Listening to Student Radhya Nityota we are Radio UF, and today we are offering you an update on what happened to all those news stories that we forgot about. I would like to start by reciting a few lines from a poem by Carol Ann Duffy called War Photographer. A hundred agonies in black and white, from which his editor will pick out five or six for Sunday's supplement. The reader's eyeballs prick with tears between the bath and the pre-launch beers. I feel that this poem sums up how well the media view, how the media view and report on events abroad. In Caroline Duffy's words, they don't care. But here at Radio UF, we don't want to fall into that trap. We want to keep discussing world affairs and not forget important stories from across the world. But I'm not alone in the studio studio today. Would you like to introduce yourselves and tell us what topic you will be discussing?
0: Right, So I'm Isaac here. I'll be talking today a bit about development of the coup in Myanmar, as well as looking a bit on the developments in the Strait of Taiwan, as well as Hong Kong.
2: And hi, my name is Melina, and I will be talking about the conflicts happening, currently happening in the Ethiopian Tigray region.
1: Great. Uh, my name's Greta. I will be updating you on all things Eastern Europe. So I'll be focusing on Russia and Belarus. I'll be hosting today with Isaac and Melina and Amanda will be our joint technicians. So stay tuned because we'll be right back after this. Uh, welcome back. You're listening to Student Radio in You just heard Sulit Born by Bella Leonet. We are Radio UF and today we're updating you on Forgotten World Events. My first episode at Radio UF was back in November, on the events in Belarus, and I would really like to update you and myself on Europe's last dictatorship. To remind you, mass protests began to take place across Belarus after dictator Alexander Lukashenko claimed victory in a presidential election in August, widely condemned as rigged. However, from December, protests were getting smaller but more creative. The simple colours of the opposition flag, red and white, have become an important symbol for the protesters. Dances and music in the street are another way people have shown solidarity with the movement. But as protesters have come up with new methods, the government has made these illegal. For example, one week protesters line the streets showing the peace sign with their fingers or holding up flowers. And the next week, those simple actions will get you arrested. Today, even wearing red and white socks could result in your arrest. I had the absolute privilege to attend a seminar at which Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, the leader of the Belarusian opposition, spoke. She does not interpret the slowing down of protests as a slowing down in momentum. She said that large protests have become small, regular, local protests, which can be just as effective. However, as the months have progressed, the movement does appear to be dying out. Most activists today are either scared, jailed or exiled. On the 25th of March, Victory Day, Tikhanovskaya called for another round of protests. However, the price of protesting has risen since last autumn, now carrying a serious prison sentence. There are currently over 290 political prisoners in Belarus, and more than 2,500 activists, protesters and journalists have faced criminal charges. The protest movement is also suffering from a lack of morale. Many people don't believe that protesting will oust Lukashenko anymore. Moreover, the opposition is beginning to splinter now, with new movements emerging, run by Viktor Babariko and Pava Latushko, among others. This has even led to questions of whether Tiganovskaya, despite being the international face of the movement, can speak for the Belarusian opposition anymore. She has no party to back her up. That said, the new parties also seem doomed to fail, as they may not even be allowed to register. In fact, not a single opposition party has ever been allowed to register over the last 20 years. Victory Day was also used to call for tougher sanctions on Lukashenko's regime. As explained opposition leader Latushko, we are talking about repressions against hundreds of thousands of Belarusians, And at this moment, you are saying that the sanctions against 88 people and seven enterprises that have no significance for the country's economy are sanctions? Well, Lukashenko, unfortunately, only laughs at this. The international reaction to the protest has, in Tikhanovskaya's words, been very modest, which is problematic as she feels that political transition can only succeed with United Western support. It seems to be mainly Central and Eastern European countries that are leading the charge to support Belarus. For example, whilst French President Emmanuel Macron was the first leader to meet Tikhanovskaya, he has not met her since. It's clear that more consistent support is needed to keep the pressure on Lukashenko to resign. That's why it's so important for us to keep talking about these issues, to keep them in people's minds and on the government agenda. However, the situation in Belarus isn't dire. Just because the protests are dissipating, it doesn't mean that all opposition is dead. Art and culture have been mobilized as means of protests. And what's more, this month, 10 people have filed a criminal complaint in Germany against Lukashenko for torture and crimes against humanity. German lawyers have evidence of at least a thousand... Ca- oh, sorry, at least a hundred cases of torture in Belarus. In some ways, Belarus is a silver lining in a Europe increasingly toying with the liberal values. It gives us hope that the will for freedom is there. We are willing to fight when our rights are being taken away. The issue is, as one protester puts it... What is going on now is not so photogenic. It is it is impossible to take pictures in prison cells where people are being tortured every day, meaning that the current forms of opposition are less likely to catch media attention. That's why it's so important for us to continue the dialogue.
0: Du hörde precis. Hurt's to hate somebody by E L I O U Chase Atlantic and No Rome. Du lyssnar på Studentradion 98,9 and We Are Radio UF to follow up on Greta's talk about Belarus. We're switching gears over to the other side of the world with Myanmar and the current developments with the coup. As recently we just passed the 100 day mark of the since the coup took place and the military junta took control of the government and the latest thing to be heard have been that the shadow government have now been classified a terrorist organization by the junta. They've also tried to rally some forces to decide to fight back against the military junta, which themselves have also been classified a terrorist organization. Many hope that the Association of Southeast Asian Nations or ASEAN would be able to either mediate the conflict or put bigger pressures on the junta to tr- shift back to a more democratic form of regime and during the but they were first criticized for even hosting the military le- the current military leader of min, min that controls the country which was the first his first sighting abroad and during this talks the the hope was that they would cease violence especially against the civilians to make the country reach some semblance of normality, which they seemingly agreed to. But once he returned home to uh, Myanmar, he declared that he won't cease any violence against the unjust protesters until the situation in Myanmar has stabilized. Currently, it seems like Myanmar is standing alone, even though Antonio Guterres the current UN Secretary of State have or current UN Secretary have expressed his support for Myanmar as well as some nations having levied sanctions against different military leaders of the of the junta it still seems to be ineffective in countering the violence that is currently being perpetrated in the country as it stands right now it looks like there's no end in sight i guess corona currently also limits the ability of the international community to make a hands-on approach, though that might also just deteriorate the situation, hopefully fall down into a civil war, but it might very well be the next stage of the development in Myanmar. We'll be right back after this. Love, just you just heard Summer Fling by Honey, you're to Student Radio 98.9. This is Radio UF. So take us from one part of the world to the next. We're going back into Africa and Melina to update us on the current situation in Ethiopia.
2: Absolutely. Thanks a lot, Isaac. In last November's Radio UF episode, Amanda gave us an an overview of what was happening in Tigray, Ethiopia's northernmost region, and she explained the main reasons underlying the armed conflict. Tigray caught a lot of media attention around that time, as fighting had just broken out. Even though the conflict was not making the international headlines anymore in the following weeks, it was still pretty easy to get updates on the tensions' evolution. But as time went by, Tigrayan news got progressively replaced by other issues. So here's an attempt to provide you with the latest developments. First of all, just to give you a bit of a background, here's how the war broke out. It's a very simplified explanation. If you want to learn more about it, make your own research. (laughs) But yeah, so there were tensions between the Ethiopian federal government and the Tigray regional group government, which was led by the Tigray People's Liberation Front, also known as TPLF. Those tensions erupted into an open uh, armed conflict since the federal government decided to postpone regional elections in August 2020 due to the COVID crisis. The TPLF was opposing that elections deferral and decided to hold the elections in September anyways, which did not but lead to an escalation in the discord between the two parties. When the TPLF attacked a military base in Tigray's regional capital, Mekele, Ethiopian Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed sent the army to the region. And the conflict is still going on. Aid workers say that heavy shelling and gun battles raged in five different parts of the region in early May. It is hard to to gauge the situation, however, as the government has restricted journalists in Tigray. But there is no clear end in sight to the conflict, said UNICEF spokesperson James Elder after returning from a visit to Ethiopia in late April. The fighting is causing a complex and acute humanitarian crisis. According to the International Organization for Migration, IOM, over 1 million people are displaced across Tigray and neighboring Amhara and Afar regions. Armed conflicts represent particularly challenging contexts for humanitarian organizations, as warring parties often suspect NGOs of being biased or even spying for the other sides. According to a a CNN reportage published yesterday, Eritrean troops disguised as Ethiopian military are actually blocking humanitarian aid from entering certain locations, such as the currently besieged city of Aksum. And that's another new feature of the hostilities, the alleged presence of Eritrean troops in the region. On March the 26th, the Ethiopian prime minister said that Eritrea had agreed to withdraw troops from the border area. However, the Eritrean government itself has never confirmed that its troops are integrated. But CNN journalists witnessed that Eritrean forces were working hand-in-glove with the Ethiopian government, assisting in a merciless campaign against the Tigrayan people. In some pockets, apparently, the Eritrean forces are actually in full control and they are waging a reign of terror and even threatening medical staff in the hospitals. Hostilities in Tigray have also been accompanied by serious violations of international law, possibly amounting to war crimes and crimes against humanity. And there is evidence that widespread and systematic sexual violence is perpetrated by men in uniform. Rape is used in Tigray as a weapon of war. And according to several media and political experts, the conflict bears the hallmarks of genocide and has the potential to destabilize the wider horn of Africa. Africa region. We'll be right back.
0: So that was Get High by Clothes by the band The Rhymes. Du lyssnar på 98,9 and this is Radio UF. To take us back from Africa, we're going to Russia again with Greta here.
1: Thank you. So protests in Russia began on the 23rd of January 2021 in support of the opposition leader Alexei Navalny after his arrest and the release of the film Putin's Palace. But I wonder in the studio, what was the last news you heard about Navalny and the protests in Russia? I
2: think I heard something saying that Navalny's um, health condition was really bad, mm-hmm. yet the Russian authorities wouldn't allow doctors to see him or something like that. hmm.
0: I remember hearing the last that he was flew into Germany, treated, and once eventually got better, got back to Russia and then jailed.
1: Yeah, exactly. So he was in Germany, flew back to Russia, was imprisoned. And now the latest is that on the 31st of March, he began a hunger strike in protest and not being able to see his own medical team. By the 19th of April, the Malinese doctors, as you said, Melina, announced that if he did not eat or receive urgent medical attention, he would die in a few days. In response to this, Navalny's team decided that there was no time to lose and organised protests to get Navalny medical attention on the 21st of April. Protesters defied warnings and the strong police presence, resulting in nearly 2,000 people being detained. Solidarity protests also took across Europe and the Caucasus. On the 23rd of April, Navalny announced that he would end his hunger strike, saying that he had been seen twice by civilian doctors and, given the progress and circumstances, I'm ending my hunger strike. However, that was the end of the concessions. By the 26th of April, a Russian prosecutor had ordered Navalny's team to suspend all activities across Russia, including the work of Navalny's Anti-Corruption Foundation. These groups will be labelled as extremist, which will allow imprisonment for up to 10 years for those who are involved with them. Just yesterday, a former mayor was jailed for calling people to protest. Navalny's Moscow team is now taking down their social media page and 36 Navalny headquarters are being disbanded because of this new threat. The response to this among Navalny's supporters has been to run independently in the local elections, thus keeping up the opposition to the regime. By the 7th of May, Amnesty International had reinstated Navalny's status as prisoner as a prisoner of conscience after revoking the status in February. A decision that they insist was made independently of the Russian state. The reinstating of Navalny's prisoner of conscience status is a response to how their previous decision to revoke this status has been had been used to further violate Navalny's rights in Russia. More recently, the former head of the Russian hospital that th- treated Navalny last year, Ale- Alexander Murakovsky, this episode is really like how many languages can we attempt to speak. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) went missing after a hunting trip in Siberia. Having gone missing, a huge search party including National Guard officers, emergency workers and local residents attracted national attention. However, Murakovsky reappeared in a village on Monday looking healthy. This followed the sudden deaths of two of his fellow hospital colleagues who also treated Navalny after he was poisoned with Novichok, although there is no indication of foul play. When treating Navalny last year, Dr. Murakowski gave several press briefings where he denied that Navalny had been poisoned. When Murokovsky was promoted to regional health minister in November 2020, Navalny ridiculed this decision, saying, You lie, fake test results, and are ready to please the bosses in any way. You get an award and a promotion. As ever, events surrounding Alexei Navalny's medical treatment are a source for some consternation. It is certainly true that Navalny and his supporters' fight is not over yet.
0: So then how, Greta, does this relate to uh, Belarus?
1: Well, Lukashenko at the moment is no longer an asset for Russia, rather a liability. And according to uh, Polish minister Madsim Szydacz, Russia is planning for X country, could be a series of webinars, which I think is very true. <laughs> Russia is the one who was scared of a democratic Belarus. And last year, there was definitely a feeling that suppressing the protests in Belarus could solve the problems in Russia. And what is happening in Belarus is not a geopolitical revolution, but Russia is making it so. So that's Mm. what I would say.
0: (laughs) We'll be right back after this. Nice. That was Tired by Scott and Childe. Du lyssnar på Studentradion 98.9. This is Radio UF. After our second trip back to Europe, we're now going yet again back to Asia instead. And I'll be updating a bit on the current situation in uh, Hong Kong as well as... China and Taiwan relations. So starting off, in uh, in last year, we after the Lam after Lam, the current head of the Koay Carrie Lam, yeah, in um, Hong Kong, pushed for the extradition treaty with mainland China. There have been ongoing protests in Hong Kong, as we've known. Though Corona has made it a lot more difficult. And in June last year, Hong Kong instated laws to prohibit gatherings of two large groups of people, the protests have still been ongoing. One of the latest news have been that Joshua Wong, along with other, from Hong Kong perspective, conspirators in these demonstrations, was arrested in jail, charged with breaking this new law as they still held the yearly vigil in remembrance of Tiananmen Square in Hong Kong. Which then was deemed a violation of this anti of this anti gathering law, and the current situation it seems only to be worsened, especially since last year, few of the legislators in the cool leg in Hong Kong were arrested and then detained, and in response to this, a lot of the pro-democratic legislators walked. That has only left the pro-China legislators a power. Almost a power vacuum to further close the gap between Hong Kong and China, and open up the possibilities for even greater influence of China in Hong Kong, especially under the guise of controlling the epidemic in the city. Unfortunately, the situation just seems to be worsening by the moment, and uh, it hasn't seen much improvements. Switching gears a bit, we're also going. I also want to discuss Taiwan's situations. Because currently, if you understand, or if you, if economic theory are to believe, you see diminishing returns on economic growth, which is one uh, reason that analysts have suspected that China is ramping up their integration of these independent regions that they claim are part of the sovereign territory, which we clearly see in Hong Kong. But less talked about is. Uh, a similar trend with Taiwan. It was only a couple years ago that China reinstated a law that said if ever Taiwan decides to proclaim themselves independent, they will legally, in their own terms, be allowed to invade the country. As a result of this, China's Communist Party's greatest claim to power have been that the party alone is the only way for China to achieve and have and have to have achieved the economic development they've seen at the end of the 20th century and now the beginning of the 21st. And now when this is slowing down, China is promoting a greater sense of patriotism. And then if they're not able to reconquer the other parts of China that they claim part to, it could be seen as a way for them to lose face and reduce their possibility to uh, hold power in China. So for that reason, they have greatly increased their incursions on Taiwan exclusionary zone, which currently is flyovers with planes. But the likeliness for an all-out attack is low, because it would be immensely costly to actually go to war with Taiwan, even if the US does not interfere. What they can do, however, is when they do these incursions into Taiwanese airspace uh, they trigger a response from the Taiwanese defense which makes them scramble jets and this, when you compare it, the cost for both countries to do this is high but compared to China, Taiwan is a relatively small economy which makes it a a larger economic drain for Taiwan to respond to these airspace incursions So it's a way to, without actively promoting war, risking interference from the international community, they can still drain the resources of Taiwan. Try and soften them up so they'll be more prone to reintegrate with the greater China. So we'll be right back after this.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Student Radio Nithiotakamaniye. We are Radio UF, and you just heard I Don't Like Dancing by Jelly Crystal. We're now in new territory, discussion ground. And I believe, Melina, you had a question during the break. Yeah,
2: when you were talking, you were saying that China not being able to take control over Taiwan or Hong Kong would be perceived as a loss of face mm. and something else that has been portrayed as a potential loss of face for China in the in the news recently was uh, its population declining because yeah you you've probably seen or heard that uh, the results of the national census having published, and I was wondering, you know, like how this would affect Chinese foreign policy. You know, like seeing that their population is declining while they're attent- attempting to become this great power leading uh, current affairs. So, what what are your thoughts on that, Isak?
0: Yeah, it's definitely an interesting topic because for many years we all know and heard about the one-child policy out of China, mm-hmm. and. Currently, they are promoting a two-child policy to replenish the population or make sure that they can reach a stable ground. Mm-hmm. But this is only a recent development. And especially looking at the costs of raising children in China, there is still, even though the government is trying its best to promote this two-child policy, it's very hard because the benefits aren't clear, or there isn't as much benefits for a lot of people, as well as their. All used to this conception of one child already, Mm. making it difficult to switch over and not something easily changed again. And this is definitely a way that uh, the Communist Party is clearly not able to enforce Mm. what they hope to achieve for the future.
1: Mm I feel what what your question makes me think, Medina, it it reminds me of just when you think about like every typical dictatorship from the 20th century, the policy was always we need kids to populate our empire, Mm -hmm. have babies, please. (laughs) <laughs> you know, like it, it was the same. It was the same in Mussolini's Italy. It was the same in Hitler's Germany. And it's kind of been the inverse in China. They're like, please stop having children. And so now, suddenly, they're confronted with the opposite situation. And you're right; it's a very interesting situation to be in. And of course, China is not the same as you know your classic 20th century dictatorship. But mm. I think it will be interesting to see how they confront that in the future.
2: Absolutely. And it, it seems to me also that um, there has been a changed a change in values. Because, yeah, I was hearing uh, a Chinese lady on the radio saying how like she wanted to focus on herself and her like personal happiness and stuff and apparently yeah, those are uh, postmodern postmodern values.
0: But one thing to remember here is also that China is very large and from what I remember one of the reasons they instated the uh, one child policy was Because the populations, especially along the coast, where people were gathering in great numbers, increasing the population density tremendously, they had to reduce the amount of people to get there. While as, just like Sweden to a degree, if you just tilt it to the side, (laughs) China also is very large, but not as spread out Mm -hmm. because most of the people live along the coast. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there is becoming a, a widening gap between the, co- the people living on the coast mm-hmm. and inland, just like the U.S. in many ways. To this end, China has also tried to grow its economy more by developing these inland regions mm. to focus on creating more consumer demand in its own country mm. to supplement the economic growth, especially now as a result of the current trade embargoes.
1: Definitely. Well, we will take a quick break, and we'll be right back.
0: You just heard 1-800-HIT-MY-LINE by Steve Dress. Du lyssnar på Studentradion 98.9. This is Radio UF. And now, switching gears a bit, because we've been covering a lot of stories tonight, especially things that they pop up in the news for a little bit, and then they fade into ignorance as other things strike pop up again, which have been, at least in my experience, especially prevalent now during corona, because there has been so many things happening surrounding Corona and the rollout mm-hmm. of vaccines and the third waves happening all over the world now mm-hmm. and then a lot of news gets sidelined but what are your guys' thoughts on this?
1: I think you're right to an extent but I do feel that there is always a dominating story and as a Brit I can tell you we talk non-stop about Brexit for like five years <laughs> 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 so um, yes I do I do agree with you but also it's not so much an excuse uh, as we maybe would like it to be and my concern with it is just that it can be used to the government advantage because if they know that the media will forget um, and the like public consciousness will forget what whatever the hell they did then they know they can get away with it and they don't feel the need to be held accountable for it and for me that's really problematic and i also feel that you can draw a parallel with the way we view the environment because we kind of flip mm. through different topics which are seen as relevant to the current day mm-hmm. um you know back in the 70s and 80s we were focusing on acid rain then it was the hole in the ozone layer then mm. it was climate change in the oceans now it's plastic um <laughs> and if you if you look at that uh, in a media perspective is we're basically doing the same thing, only much faster, which is going through topics very, very quickly. And if we forget them that quickly, they won't stay on the government agenda and we will never actually solve any of them.
0: And it seems especially obvious, I guess, because, of course, if you get a huge political scandal, it'll be obvious, or it'll be more prevalent and you usually get a bit of demonstrations for that specifically. But as long as you don't stir up enough trouble... You can quickly pass over it when the next crisis happens, and for sure, because I mean, I guess one common critique of the when we're talking about the environment is always how to make it engaging for us to make us feel the threat. It sometimes it can be hyped up too much to Mm. the degree that now a lot of people, with right, are ridiculing and claiming some people are alarmists because we Mm. have several years of people telling us, oh in twenty years there won't be any polarized left. And this is causing harm when you're also hyping up things too much to a degree.
2: I think another explanation why like some stories fall into oblivion is that yeah, with the emergence of internet, better and quicker access to information put a lot of pressure on the media to relay the latest stories. Mm. And also for the written press, since it's slowly dying, it's really struggling to find like uh, financial means and so on there's yeah there's a huge financial pressure sometimes you have to kind of write about what would catch your audience's attention and that's something I've really experienced when working in a very small newspapers sometimes when decided deciding like which side side stories we would write about we really had to like strategically strategically think about what would appeal the most to our Readers rather than what we actually thought was the most uh, interesting and relevant topics. So, yeah, definitely.
0: And one problem I'm feeling probably because of our globalized world is just how much things are happening around the globe, which creates an information overload where if you're interested in the news, you risk being fed too much information to a degree where you get exhausted by all the problems around the world. And then you just shut off and don't even forget to pay attention to important issues at home. But to end on a sober note, I'd Uh. say the the news is still very relevant. And because we're talking about it and hopefully someone is out there listening, (laughs) it's clearly not gone too far yet. Mm -hmm. But thanks for listening this week. We'll be back next week. Take care.
2: And the conclusion is, tune in next week. Yes. (laughs) Bye.
0: Det var en poddradioversion av ett program från Studentradio 98,9. Alla våra program hittar du på studentradion.com eller i vår mobilapplikation, Studentradio 98,9. Att lyssna fritt är stort, att lyssna rätt är större.